I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. For me, execution and measurement are really very closely tied together. And that's why execution and measurement is the fourth step of radical product thinking. And so once you have your vision, strategy, your priorities, execution is basically how you're validating your vision and strategy. You have to think of your vision and strategy as hypotheses. You think that this is your strategy that will work, but your execution and measurement is what actually help you prove out whether it's working or not. And I think the biggest problem that happens in execution and measurement is the fact that we forget that that's all, that our vision and strategy are hypotheses and what we measure is often disconnected from our vision and strategy. How you dare, how you dare. That was the voice of Radhika. Radhika is a completely compelling individual, completely compelling woman. And reason is because she focuses on compelling visions see what i did there she is someone that is able to help you go from ideation to execution and her book which is one of the best reads i've I've, uh, come across this year radical product thinking the new mindset for innovating smarter allows you to go from vision to strategy to prioritization to execution and then culture throughout the episode she outlines ways you can do these in your company but i'll encourage you to get the book as well because there are multiple case studies and multiple frameworks for you to model to follow and to inculcate into your life so radica compelling lady but also an advocate for radical product thinking i think many of us will agree that radical change is needed in our environment and so if you want to go from vision to culture check out the episode thank you always for the support and enjoy the interview. Welcome everyone to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is Radhika Dot. Now, Radhika is an entrepreneur and product leader who has participated in four acquisitions, two of which were companies that she founded. She's built products and industries, including broadcasting, media, advertising technology, government, consumer robotics, and wine. She advises organizations from high-tech startups to government agencies on building radical products that create a fundamental change instead of optimizing the status quo. Now, I'm really excited to have Radhika on here because before we got started and before I hit record, I was telling her that I share her vision with, you know, expanding people's thoughts and expanding the way people think. And, and I was saying, I suspect it's because she does so many things. So before I, I get too excited, let me welcome the great Radhika to the show. Welcome. Thank you, Tyra, for having me on. And I'm so excited to be here. Oh, the pleasure's mine. I, I, you know, w- with you, I always ask my guests how they got started. And I guess the question for you, since you do so many things now, what initially did you see yourself doing growing up? What, what was the career path 
that you thought you would initially be in and how did it evolve over the years? Oh, well, that's a much harder question to answer even uh, because so growing up, right, I lived in so many different countries. I lived in India till I was 12. Then I lived in South Africa where mm -hmm. uh, I was there during the transition from apartheid to democracy. And then I moved to the U.S. And so my life view and kind of what I was going to accomplish really changed over that time frame. Um, I think what really shaped my career is um, having just started a company um, right while we were still living in dorm rooms at MIT. Uh, so it wasn't really until then that I, I had a picture of what I wanted to do. I wanted to start companies or build products. Uh, and, and it was this desire to, you know, create something that, that created change in the world. Um, and along the way, I made mistakes. And this is kind of what led me to radical product thinking. Um, but, you know, there were two things that really shaped where I am today. And part of it uh, happened without my even realizing it. One was having lived in all of these different countries. Um, and the second was actually starting to build products and then making mistakes and learning from those. Yeah, no, uh, you know, I, I share the living in different countries with you and living in, in moments of, of oppression. So I grew up in five, uh, in five countries and four continents. But I also spent the first decade of my life in and out of two military regimes, and three of them were, were uh, you know, were military and you know governments. But two of them were actually heinous dictatorships. And I remember when Nelson Mandela was elected as as the first Black South African president, and we were watching with hope, like maybe there's hope for us to come out of this type of regime. So my question to you then is, as you were there during the transition from apartheid to democracy. What were the things that you saw from a big picture point of view that started to change in people's mindsets and people's worldviews? You know, some of this, I didn't realize kind of how we all knew we were living in a monumental moment, but I think the extent to which it was monumental didn't hit me at that time when I was living in South Africa. Um, what, what I realized looking back now was just so incredibly vision driven that whole transition mm. was. Um, I'll explain a little bit of what I mean. Um, you know, when we were living in those times in South Africa, all of us were worried that things were going to devolve into a civil war. Um, and there were many surprising messages. But, you know, what was interesting was Nelson Mandela and F.W. de Klerk at the time, they really shared this uh, message, a very nuanced message to the entire population. Um, and they shared this view of creating a rainbow nation. And the nuanced view was such that, you know, it's not about uh, getting revenge, etc. It was really about this truth and reconciliation commission. Let's figure out what went wrong. Let's acknowledge atrocities and how we can recover as a country. Right. And that was such a nuanced message. What strikes me now, I look at this world where we have uh, Facebook, Twitter, and we've eroded nuance in society yep. through social media, which is so incredibly polarizing. I look at those times in South Africa and realize like, you know, in this age with uh, Facebook and nuance, uh, sorry, Facebook and the lack of nuance, right? It would be so hard for a country to make the kind of nuanced 
transition that South Africa made in the 90s. Um, and that's one of the things that I write about in the book where, you know, if we want to build products that create change, um, we have to think about what's the society that we want to create through our products, because our products, whatever we're building, it affects people, it affects society. And we have to think about what is that change we want to create. Um, and you know, one of the things that happens when we build products is we often create what I call digital pollution, which is the unintended consequences that affects society. And when you take a vision-driven approach, you avoid those, uh, you avoid creating that collateral damage to society. Yeah. And and that's kind of the main theme in, in the entire book, which is that, you know, whether we're talking about the transition to democracy in South Africa, um, or it's about building a product, you have to have a clear vision for what's the world you envision at the end of what you've built. Um, and then you're systematically trying to create that change. And that was what was interesting about South Africa's transition and how we build products. No, I find it interesting that your, metho your methodology translates everywhere, right? So you have five elements. Is it five elements of radical, of radical product thinking? Exactly. I believe? Yes, I yes. believe they're vision, strategy, prioritization, execution, and culture. So you're saying the first thing is the vision. And I, and, and I completely agree with you because you and I were talking about how worldview is something I, I study. I, I also am also interested in the second step, though, because when I'm always working with companies or teaching people about how you need to first have the big picture. The next question to always ask, and what I, what I spend most of my consulting on is actually strategizing and moving from ideation to execution. So what do people need to do after they've gotten a glimpse of the vision? How do they then move it to the strategic element and making sure that it is something that can actually be applied to everyone in an equitable format? So one of the key things about you know, what you just said is the equitable format, right? And I want to bring that down to what does that mean for a strategy? Uh, when I talk about strategy, I think we need to answer four questions. The first is, you know, who's, who's coming to you with a certain pain? What exactly is that pain that they're coming to you with? So that, 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 um, what are they coming to you with that they're looking to solve in the world? Like, what's their problem? Uh, what's that pain, right? And then, the next step is thinking about what is the solution your product is going to provide uh, that solves that pain. The third then is how will you enable or power that solution? And then finally, how will you deliver that solution? This is where you think about your business model, your pricing structure, et cetera. But to create that equitable world, that first step of figuring out who has this pain and what is that pain that they're coming to your product with, that is the piece that we really have to focus on. And you know, if we wanna create an equitable world, we really have to answer that question of who has that pain? Are we thinking about it in an equitable way or are we just thinking about it from a very limited perspective and, and a, a limited worldview um, that we're only solving the pain of a very small group of people without thinking of how it affects the larger uh, group? And so this is the piece that I think um, we often miss when we want to create an equitable world. We don't think about, you know, all the different kinds of people our product will affect and how it's going to affect the different people differently. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, the concept of pain is, is so interesting because when you think about 
what is painful to you and you only use your worldview, it's hard for you to sometimes think about the, the other self, right? The, the other people in your company, the other people you work with, the other people you go to school with, the other people that you're trying to found, um, uh, you know, a, an idea or ideate with. Because if we're going to use 9-11, for example, and, and, and I'm always, I'm always very mindful of, of, of this example because many people were affected in different ways. I know that a lot of Muslims' lives changed after that day. Right. But people that might not have been Muslim had a different experience. Right. Some people might have had family members that they lost. Some people might have been in, in, in the workplace where they, they lost friends as well. Or the government itself, United States, changed how they organize security. But that one event changed the worldview for many people. And people sometimes were so uh, fixated on maybe trying to fight against the war of terrorism that they forgot what was happening inside here. And who was being affected and how they were being affected. And, and I always I always use that example because there are multiple layers to, to those type of things. And that's just one example here, right? There are multiple instances where a crisis causes people to, to think that there's only one problem when there are actually multiple problems happening simultaneously. Yeah. And whenever we create policies based on crises, right, we always are being very reactive. It's hard to be in a crisis and have a vision for, oh, you know, here's the long term picture of what I want to do differently, how I want the world to look. Um, so there, there are two things that happen in a crisis. One is that we just are being reactive. And the second is there are some people who have a very particular vision of what they want in the long term. And they use those opportunities to be able to craft the world that they want to, given that the rest of us are kind of distracted by the crisis and the reactions that we must have to those crises. And a lot of the policies that sh were shaped from 9-11 fall in those two categories, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And one of the reasons I love your book, because, you know, you call it radical product thinking. And what I love about the, the title is the, pro is the radical part. <laughs> and, then, and then the thinking part, because it is radical to step outside of one's world. We forget sometimes that uh, the way we grew up is not the way other people grew up, right? It, it often takes a shock to the system. Sometimes people call it culture shock or any of these things where you go into a new environment and you realize that people can get to the same conclusion, but through a completely different path, right? And so you've highlighted vision and strategy as the first two steps. The third step you say is prioritization. What are we supposed to prioritize in this moment? So Actually, you know, I think before we even get to prioritization, maybe I want to talk about what you just said, that each oh. of us comes to the world with such different worldviews. Yeah. And I think that this is where the vision comes in, right? Because when I talk about radical product thinking, what I mean by a vision is actually very different from what other people um, have as a vision. So I think until now, everything that we've learned about what's a good vision, it's all about like, oh, it has to be big, aspirational. Um, how am I going to change the world? And that's actually not what I mean. I actually want us to be really specific in terms of what mm. we mean by the vision and in what way we're changing the world. We're not changing the world for everyone per se. Uh, it's for a very specific um, set of users, but but which will have effects on other people, on society, et cetera. Yeah. But we have to have a clear vision that is not just this BHAG or a big, hairy, audacious goal. <laughs> it has to be uh, a vision which is um, detailed instead of a slogan, 
the vision statement that I have is typically something that looks more like an essay, right? It describes the problem in detail that we want to solve and what's the end state of the world once that's solved. So it articulates whose world are you trying to change? Uh, what does their world look like? Um, why does it need changing? Because let's be honest, maybe it's not it doesn't need changing. And this is where, you know, we often disrupt for the sake of disrupting and maybe there's no need to disrupt certain things actually. Yeah. And then finally, we can talk about, you know, what's the world you envision and how will you bring it about? So those are the who, what, why, when, how questions that I want us to answer in a vision statement. Once you have that level of detailed in a vision statement, now you're actually ready to use that uh, for your everyday decision making. And that's where, you know, to your next point of prioritization, you can start to use this vision. And so the way I bring this vision into everyday decisions is where I say, well, let's plot our decisions on X and Y axes. This way we can visualize our decisions uh, as trade-offs because the reality is every day we're making trade-offs between the long-term and the short-term. Uh, and so when you're making a trade-off where uh, it's actually not a trade-off, you know, it's just good for your vision and it's helping you survive in in the short term that's of course the ideal scenario those are the easy decisions the harder decisions are ones where it's good for your vision in the long term but it's not helping you survive in the short term that's where you're really investing in the vision um, if we think about you know the opposite of that is where you're taking on vision debt this is where it's helping you in the short term uh, but in the long term it's not good for your vision one example of that i'll give you an example after 9 11 we really tightened our immigration policies yeah, yeah. Uh, it was you know one of those key moments yes it was good for survival in the short term in the sense that it helped with votes and getting um, pop the population to feel like, oh, we're taking action, but it wasn't good for the long-term vision of the country. We were taking on vision debt as a country. Um, and a lot of this kind of polarization that we created as a country that was you know, taking on vision debt that really took us further away. It was a detour from the vision of America and the American dream. Um, so how do we make decisions? We balance these quadrants. The more vision debt you take on, the more you tend to get lost uh, in your, you know, you take yourself further and further away from the long-term picture. Um, and the more you try to stay um, focused on the long-term, the better off you are. But you can't do too much of investing in the vision. Uh, let's look at a politician's example. If the politician never thought about re getting re-elected, they would never get re-elected. And in that case, it's hard to achieve your vision in the first place, right? So you have to kind of invest in the vision, but not to the extent that, uh, to the exclusion of everything else. So you find the right balance between all of these quadrants um, to be able to create the change that you want to bring to the world. Yeah. And that's yeah. the that's the element of prioritization. The idea is to bring everyone on the team with you on the journey by talking about these trade-offs and helping your team visualize these trade-offs. This is so, so important because I love the fact that you started off with vision. And even as you're going down the points, you're still tying it back to whatever that vision is, right? It, it's more, you're making it more actionable as each step goes, and in your case, more specific, but it's still a guide, compass. 
Exactly. And it goes back to something you said, which was, you know, you were saying we all come from these different perspectives, right? So the, the starting point of this vision and why I talk about the vision being so detailed is to align all of us on that shared end picture, especially because we all have such different perspectives that, you know, um, there was this interesting article I read, which says, you know, the mind is always in this controlled hallucination. Each of us perceives reality slightly differently. Yeah. And that's shaped by kind of where we came from, what our experiences were. And so talking about our vision in that much detail helps us share um, a clear picture of what is the reality we currently see and what is the future that we envision. And you have to start with that kind of discussion because we all start from such different places. And then this way we can bring people with us on the journey, both from uh, in terms of the vision, but also through our actions and being aligned on kind of how we'll translate that into every day. And this is what I found that, you know, Often when we build products, there's a break in the chain somewhere between vision and everyday actions. And it's where that break happens that you see what I call product diseases or the mistakes that I was talking about that, uh, you know, I found myself making when I was building my startups. Right. Uh, those are the product diseases that come up whenever there's that break in the chain. And so the whole methodology was something to avoid such breaks and avoid product diseases. Just wanted to stop by here before we get back to the episode. I wanted to let you all know that I do have a collective for people who are interested in developing their cultural competency skills, becoming more anti-racist. And it's a resource of things that you can do with your family, with your school, with yourself to work through your individual journey to become a better culturally competent leader. It's called UID Collective, and the link is in the show notes, but it's a mix of courses, it's a mix of resources, things you can download, and all you need to do is sign up as a member. It's a monthly membership. I'd love for you to check it out, use it with your friends, use it with your family, use it with yourself, okay? The link is in the show notes. It's called UID Collective, and it's for those of you that want to improve your cultural competency skills. Back to the episode. Ah, this is brilliant. This is so brilliant, and uh, I, I just like how you've translated your life experience to, you know, helping people and being a guide. Because uh, a lot of times now in today's world, I feel like when crises occur, you know, the natural emotion is, is hopelessness and helplessness. And you have an attitude that is, well, let's see what we can learn from this. And let's translate this into some some steps that we can execute. So, um, oh, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I have my moments, I guess, after I read the news sometimes. <laughs> Hey, I'm, I'm right there with you. But, you know, if for, if for some reason, I, I share that uh, that optimism with you. I call myself an angry optimist, though. You know, I, my anger is what fuels me, <laughs> but uh, an optimist non, non, nonetheless. Uh, so the prioritization there and then the execution. How do you make the execution decision? Yeah, I think... For me, execution and measurement are really very closely tied together. And that's why execution and measurement is the fourth step of radical product thinking. And so once you have um, your vision strategy, your priorities, execution is basically how you're validating your vision and strategy. You have to think of your vision and strategy as hypotheses. You think that this is your strategy that will work, but your execution and measurement is what Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Actually help you prove out whether it's working or not. And I think the biggest problem that happens in execution and measurement is the fact that we forget that that's all, that our vision and strategy are hypotheses. And what we measure is often disconnected from our vision and strategy. Yeah. Um, so there's this product disease I call hypermetricemia, which is where we are obsessed with measurement and measurement measuring things, but it often turns out that we're not measuring the right metrics. Um, and so, for example, right, when we're building products or building companies, often the metrics that we measure are ones like, you know, what's our annual revenues per year, our number of users, the time our users are spending on site. And, you know, maybe those are, so those are the popular metrics. Maybe those are the right metrics to measure for your business, but not necessarily. We have to measure what is right for our business? And that's driven by what's the right vision uh, for your business, right? And what's your strategy? And I'll give you one example, which I use in the book. There is an organization um, called Lidget where you know, their vision was giving women financial independence. So mm -hmm. um, the group of people that they were trying to give this financial independence to, they were women who are, you know, in um, the low in low SES households, so low socioeconomic status households, um, they have you know lower literacy rates or live in a very patriarchal uh, society. And for these women, they didn't want to be dependent on their husbands. They wanted to be able to contribute to their uh, family income so that they could have a say in educating their kids. And so this. Um, organization was started by a group of women who wanted that for themselves, but not just for themselves, they wanted to give this to other women as well. And so every single woman in this organization is an equal partner. Uh, they create, um, they, they started with the idea of, um, of making papadums. Papadums are those lentil crackers you eat in Indian restaurants. Okay. And uh, so this organization now has 60% market share in the world for Papadums. Their brand is known for quality. Um, their revenues are over $220 million annually. But how they measure success is not by those metrics. There's only one metric that they measure success by, which is how many women they have given financial independence to. Um, and today they've given financial independence to over 45,000 women. Um, and what is truly amazing to me, right, is that kind of focus in terms of what's the right measurement for you. And this is not to say that revenues and market share is not important. Like, obviously, you know, if their market share dipped or revenues dipped, they're giving fewer women financial independence. And so 
it's important, but that's not the key metric. Because let's say their metric were just profits or um, or market share. You know, they would have created factories to be able to make puppetums. Instead, their entire model is about these women being able to uh, work from home and roll puppetums at home, which is what enables them to be financially independent in those patriarchal households where they're the primary caregiver and cannot really leave home for long periods of time. There's something I always say. I say we need to get used to the idea of equally as good alternatives. And you're reminding me of that because when you were telling me that story, I was just thinking about the fact that, you know, when you're creating elements of metrics and measurements, sometimes what is success for someone is success is not the same for another person. It could actually be failure for someone else just because of the optics and, and maybe with the way someone's cultural background informed them. And it goes back to the idea of, of nuance. When you're able to understand that they're equally as good alternatives, I think that frees your thinking uh, to be a little radical, if you will. Uh, exactly. And this yeah. is why I loved your podcast, Tayo, because, you know, you provide that very different perspective. Um, and that really resonated with me because in the book, I wanted to provide this global perspective of what does success mean for us when we build products? You know, until now, the way most business books uh, or methodologies frame success is a very Silicon Valley centric interpretation of success, which is to be a unicorn to make lots of money. Um, and, and that is basically success, right? To have a ton of users or, or some such metric. Um, whereas to me, and I think if we look at all of these global examples, the way we can define the success of our product is whether it's creating the change that we set out to in the first place. Yeah. You know, what is that change you want to bring to the world? And is your product creating that change? And that is the radical way to me uh, of thinking about product, which is, you know, product isn't just this piece of software or hardware or, mm. uh, you know, physical or digital thing that we're building. Anything can be your product if it's your mechanism to create the change you want to see in the world. Oh, yeah. And this is why, you know, towards the end, I talk about anything being a product, whether it's, you know, software to put man on the moon or activism uh, to bring about change uh, in society. Yeah, I, I ask uh, companies and individuals these questions when I'm working with them on changing culture, which is your next point. Uh, I always ask, well, what does belonging mean to you? What does, what does support mean to you? What does success mean to you? And because, you know, it, it could mean completely different things. You know, we, we, we are on the heels of pandemic, hopefully, and, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, the anti-Asian violence, everything that's been happening. But the idea of belonging and support and success means radically different things for each of, of these groups based on the current systems that exist. Right. And sometimes we're strangers to that because we expect that if I belong, you should belong, right? This is a free country, for example, that that would be a, a common retort to that. What are you talking about? I grew up the same way. You know, all those little things that strip nuance and, and understanding and the ability to see people for who they really are. Yeah, this, this question of belonging really uh, touches a nerve for me because, you know, I've lived in all these countries. Uh, I speak many languages, but I am not sure where I actually belong, right? And that's a- Third a culture kid. Thing. Third culture kid. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. And, and, and last but certainly not least, you talk about culture. 
and and, uh, and what that is. What, what are you trying to say with that? Yeah, I think, you know, until now, our picture of culture or organizational culture has been really fluffy or a nebulous idea because how do you describe your work culture? You know, you can say you're aspiring towards a culture that's open or transparent, but what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just like we start with a vision, if we want to create change, I realized that we needed a, a really clear vision of culture that we can describe in completely articulate terms for our teams so that we can get on board saying this is, yes, the culture that we want, right? And so my realization was we can think about culture on two dimensions. Um, and culture is basically the cumulative set of experiences uh, that we experience in our workday. And so our experiences in our workday are on two dimensions, which is whether work is fulfilling or not, that's one dimension. And the second dimension is whether work is urgent or not. So that gives us four quadrants. So basically the first quadrant is if work is fulfilling and it's not urgent, that's the stuff that's meaningful work. You know, it's because it's not urgent, you have the mental and emotional bandwidth to think about things. You're really thinking about your vision, strategy, you're doing things purposefully. And so that feels like it's uh, meaningful work. And that's why that quadrant, I call that the meaningful work quadrant. I have a question for you because these are such brilliant concepts, but you know, if I'm going to think about the other side, how do you deal with the resistance? Say someone's listening to what you're saying, Radhika, and they're saying, well, that's all nice and good, but this is the best way I can make profit. Well, I don't like your thinking. I've made a million, a billion dollars like this. Or maybe someone might be racist or someone might be sexist and they might just not share your alignment. Or you are a co-founder with someone that just has a very different view from you and they're motivated by profit and they only liked you for what you could offer in terms of that. How do you deal with those moments where people don't share a big core element of your value system or worldview as you're growing? You know, excellent question. Let's start with this first piece you said of what if someone is just going for profits? Let's even start there with, you know, profits. We have come to think that the way we can build really profitable companies is by doing kind of uh, what our current mantras tell us, which is just try different things, put things in the market, see what works, keep iterating, and you'll find product market fit. And, you know, the analogy I have is it's like licking trees, hoping for maple syrup. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there are a few unicorns that come up because of the strategy. You may just find maple trees that you're licking, right? But that's not um, statistically, it's really hard to find success this way. So even if your goal is just a financially successful company, the answer is not just, you know, let's just, you know, put things in the market, keep trying, iterating uh, until we find product market fit. Even if profitability is the only thing you want to think about, start with a clear vision and use, you know, your strategy to convert that into an actionable set of steps. And then, you know, even in how you execute and measure, prove out like what you're doing with your vision and strategy. You can use iterations, but have your iterations be driven by vision and strategy. Yeah. Okay. All right. No, I love this. You know, Daniel Pink says that this book doubles down as a guide for infusing meaning into everyday work and packing purpose into every organization. And I'm listening to you and I can understand that concept because you're not only reminding people that 
there there needs to be any, uh, a level of intentionality with what they're doing, but you're humanizing a lot of these experiences, even if they're super specific. And I, I can see how this will help with acquiring talent, but also even um, working against competitors if you're in the business sense. Exactly. And my goal is not to make us be altruistic uh, per se. Like I think there is definitely an important part. Uh, I'm not asking for businesses to operate like charities. You right. know, by being a business, we actually influence many more people than charities do. And so the point is finding that right balance so that we can be profitable, but responsible yeah. at the same time. Yes. Well, we're all changing products, being a vision-driven innovator and, and, and embracing a new mindset is, is your goal. But in your personal life, outside of this, you also do many things. What about your life did you feel like found in one company was not enough? What about your life? Did you feel like I need to be a teacher? I need to teach uh, students. I need to work with other companies as advisors. I need to create here. I need to write. When did you realize that maybe being in one industry was not enough for you? Um, that's a fascinating question. I don't think I realized it until much later. So um, I, you know, it's, Initially, my career just um, was driven by not necessarily being in a trying to be in one particular industry. It was driven by finding the most interesting people to work with. Mm. And that led me to work in different industries. In fact, I've never he held two consecutive jobs uh, in the same industry. Uh, <laughs> so that led me to this very kind of uh, varied uh, experiences in every single job I held. Um, and that kind of opens up that confidence to say, you know what, I've held roles in doing strategy, I've been a CEO, uh, I want to try, you know, doing something else. Writing a book didn't come about until you know, 2017, that idea hit me because of the frustration of seeing all of us just make the same mistakes uh, over and over in terms of encountering these product diseases that make good products go bad. And thinking that, you know, it feels like there are just these few rare individuals, like we think of Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, who just seem to innately know what to build. Um, and is it just that we're doomed to always having only these few rare leaders creating visionary products? Or can anyone learn to do that? And that's what inspired uh, writing Radical Product Thinking and building the whole toolkit. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I think going into teaching was kind of the next step because I realized that as students, most of what I had learned, um, I had never had a class on ethics, honestly. Uh, I had never had a class that taught me how exactly do you write a good vision? It was always a lot of this conventional wisdom that I had heard of, oh, your vision has to be big, audacious. It has to, you know, the examples we've heard are things like to be the leader in blah or being number one or number two in every industry. Like all of those things were ideas that I wanted to change. And really wanted to plant the seed in young minds that we can create change systematically. And that led me to teaching. Yeah, no, I, I love that so much. It, it sounds like you know how to listen to yourself and also listen for problems. That's those two things are very rare in people, in my opinion. But the, the fact that you can do that, and I suspect it's because of your background, uh, is, is unique, is unique. But you're also giving people a framework to show them that 
Maybe it's not as unique as I think. It's something that is dormant because of the cultures we've created. Exactly. I love what you said, because, you know, each of us can create the change that we envision, right? And the change that you see in the world is so important because you have such a unique perspective coming from your culture. Each of us is creating that change. And if we want to create a world that works for all, we have to enable people, you know, from all walks to be able to create that sort of change uh, and create the products that will make the world, you know, work better for everyone. 100%. Talk to, to Radical Dutt here, who's the uh, founder of Radical, uh, not founder, the writer, the author of Radical Product Thinking. Where can we find the book, Radical Product Thinking? So it's on Amazon, it's on your local uh, bookstore shelf um, and Barnes and Noble, but support local bookstores. <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> support local bookstores. So you, we, we can find the book, um, yeah, anywhere books are sold. It's also, I know you also have a website, uh, radicalproduct.com. So people can also check that out in, in case they're, you know, they want to get more from you and, you know, about you. And oh, thank sorry, you for no, mentioning no. that. Also, <laughs> uh, on the on the website, you know, I wanted to make sure that anyone who wants to create change, um, that there's the free toolkit for them to be able to do that. So on the website, you can sign up for the mailing list and you'll get the free toolkit, uh, which really helps you walk through the vision strategy, etc. that I work, work through in the book. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I saw that this morning. So uh, thank you for reminding me about that. Any other last words or thoughts that come to mind before we go to the final question? Um, maybe I'll share the most um, exciting story that I felt like I was honored to tell. Depends on whether we have time. We do, we do, we do. Oh, you know, the story that I was truly honored to tell is one that is not heard very often. And that is the story of Claudette Colvin and how she created change. Um, you know, okay, so Claudette Colvin um, is um, now, I think she's uh, about 80 years old. And um, when she was 15, she was arrested for defying the bus segregation laws um, in Alabama. So, you know, in interviewing her, I asked her, you know, at 15, how did you refuse to give up your seat? And this was nine months before Rosa Parks, by the way. Um, and her answer was the vision that she had. She wanted um, to live in a world where everyone had access to the same American dream. And so this action was, you know, her investing in the vision, basically, it wasn't good in the short term for her at all. Um, not even in the long term, honestly, but like it was good for the vision in the long term. And she did this. Um, the other way that she really invested in the vision was that she was one of the four plaintiffs that overturned um, segregation on buses. She was on the Broder versus Gale as one of the four plaintiffs. And it was her, not Rosa Parks, that um, that drove that change, right? Um, and what is really interesting to me is when you're so vision-driven, what you really care most about is the change that you're bringing about, uh, not necessarily who is bringing about that change. Um, and you know, when I asked her about Rosa Parks, her comment was just really touching. Like she was not bitter about the fact that Rosa Parks was the icon of the civil rights movement. 
she talked about it so matter-of-factly. Um, the idea was that, you know, she had sparked something, right, by not giving up her seat and getting arrested at 15. But she saw that for this to really become a movement, that the person who was the icon had to have the support of the wider society. And Rosa Parks could be that icon. She was much older, well-respected by everyone. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, in her vision-driven approach, that was kind of saying, well, it was her, Rosa Parks, that needed to kind of carry the baton from there. Her entire story of how she so systematically created change and, you know, at such a young age. Um, and, you know, when she moved to New York after all of this, um, really, I think, a tough life, she never even really talked to people in New York about how much change she had brought about and her role in the civil rights movement, because she felt like, you know, what's the point? People aren't going to really understand. And she was okay with that. Um, and just, it was such an honor to interview her. And I share that in the book. What a cool, cool moment for you. That uh, That's such a great opportunity to meet Claudette. You know, you're right. Her story isn't told often. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just amazed that, you know, you, you got to talk to her. That's, that's so amazing. I, I am just really grateful that you let me tell the story. <laughs> well, the pleasure is mine. You know, you, you're, you're a brilliant woman, and I'm so glad that you, you have a platform and a framework for many of us to follow. So I, I got to ask you this final question, which is my mission statement reframed as a question. So how do you, Radhika, use your difference to make a difference? Oh, um, in writing the book, I wanted to provide this global perspective. Um, and my book was vision driven in that I want to help people create a difference or create change in the world very systematically. Um, so one of the things that I'm doing um, is I'm learning to measure success differently as well, wow. uh, which means, you know, even in terms of the book and um, how, how I perceive success of the book, it's not about kind of how many books are sold or like, you know, just uh, how many people talk about the book. To me, success is about like, are people able to use this approach to yeah. create change? And what makes me happiest is not, you know, just the numbers. Like, it's really not about that. For me, it's when people reach out to me and tell me, you know, what they did with it and how they created change in the world uh, through this methodology. That's been the most rewarding aspect for me. Wow. I, I love that so much. You're you're actually living out what you said. So thank you so much for gracing us with your presence. I know this is a very busy time for you. Also, semester's back. You know, I, I, I understand that as well. And I know that, uh, you know, you're wearing multiple hats. But I just want to thank you so much for coming on and being so uh, generous with your time and your concept. I, I have no doubt that this book is going to change lives. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be on your show and talk to you. Well, the pleasure's mine. Kings, queens, and royalty till next time. Use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Mom. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.